You know, a lot of parenting is simply about teaching your kids like how to live, like how to do life. I, I look at my son and my daughter right now, a lot of what we're doing is just basically showing them how to be human, like how to interact with others. You know, say thank you, say please, look them in the eyes, don't punch them, don't yell at the top of your lungs, don't stab your sister with a fork, right? Like a lot of parenting is simply just teaching your kids like, like how to live. Like you're trying to show them you can't just have whatever you want whenever you want. It's not going to always be your way. It's not going to be the way you want it done. And a lot of times parenting is just trying to show them, like I'm trying to coach you on how to be human. And in many ways, that's what pastoring can feel like, or that's what preaching can feel like, or teaching the word of God can be like, or just for everyone. This isn't just my job. Everyone's job to make disciples. A lot of that is just showing them how to do life, how to practice the way of Jesus, how to live in the way of Jesus, how to say, listen, being a follower of Jesus looks differently than everything else. That my lifestyle, that your lifestyle is going to look a lot different than what the world's lifestyle looks like. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to everyone. Like this seems right, but the end is death. The end of that way, you, you follow that way to its end, it's going to lead to death. You know, you think about a lot of things come very naturally for me, for you. Uh, think about those things that might come naturally. It's natural for me to uh, want to be unforgiving. It's natural for me to be selfish. It's natural for me to be greedy. It's natural for me to be cynical, sarcastic, rude. It's natural for me to be filled with pride. Th those things come really naturally. And again, if you're a parent, you, have to, you realize, obviously, like, you don't have to teach your kids sin. It's in their heart, and then they observe th things in your life and just get, it gets magnified, right? Those things just come natural. It's supernatural for me to be forgiving. It's supernatural for me to be loving when I don't want to be. It's supernatural for me to be generous. It's supernatural for me to invite someone into my life and have an uncomfortable moment or conversation. Those are things that we try to avoid at all costs. And yet the way of Jesus just looks so different. And this is what the author's saying. He, he's painted this beautiful, this, think about Hebrews so far. He's walked through this beautiful illustrations of look at Jesus. Moses, angels, Aaron, the priesthood, the high priest, the tabernacle, the temple, everything in the temple, all of it is about Jesus. All of it speaks to Jesus. All of it points to Jesus. Abraham knew this. Sarah knew this. Isaac knew this. All those who lived and walked by faith, they were looking for that, that promised one, the Messiah, the one to come. They've always lived by faith. We too live by faith. This is kind of Hebrews out of big picture. And then chapter 12 is saying, look, there's a coming kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that everything else will be shaken in this world until that which cannot be shaken remains. And that is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of Jesus. And now the author's closing out by saying, and we're going to live differently. Remember last week, let brotherly love continue. Show hospitality. Hey, remember the person in prison. He's saying, you're going to live a, a differently in light of who Jesus is. So think about like 11 to 12 chapters basically saying, this is who Jesus is. And now he's given us direction on how to live. And here's the thing. Um, we're going to do leadership differently. We're going to follow differently. The world doesn't really honor those in authority well. We're going to honor differently. We're going to follow differently. We're going to lead with integrity. He's saying our, the way we worship, uh, we're going to put our, our worship will look different than the world's worship, what they value, what they consider. And then he just ends with Jesus, man, the supremacy of Jesus, the, the great shepherd, the blood of the everlasting covenant. And he's basically saying this is just a new way of living. So you and I have a new way of living now.
So I want to walk through this as we kind of, you know, it feels like random verses. The author just kind of, you know, uh, saying some things here and there. So we're going to kind of look at this as a whole and look at some three spiritual ways to live. All right. So we're going to look at spiritual leadership, spiritual worship, and spiritual lordship. Spiritual leadership, spiritual worship, and spiritual lordship. All right. Spiritual leadership. Our, our way of leadership should and will look differently than the world, and so will the way we follow. Uh, verse 7. Let's look at spiritual leadership. Verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Verse 17, skip ahead. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. All right, spiritual leadership. You might not see, like, where's that word leader? The ESV, I think, has a better translation, so I'll read it again to you. In the ESV, verse 7 says, uh, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life, and imitate their faith. Remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. This is almost like an uncomfortable talk for me and for you. Because the author is going to address leaders, this is how you need to lead. And followers or the church body, this is how you should respect and honor your leaders. So I'm going to first challenge myself and other leaders, whether you are another elder, deacon, group leader, you lead some capacity, you, you disciple others. Uh, I, I want to speak to you because there's this sense where our lives should look very different uh, as we live. We want to live honorably, as he says. And then we also want to follow honorably. So first, the challenge to leaders. We'll kind of put this up here because I try to condense it a little bit for us. He says, leaders, listen, this is your role. This is your job. You, you speak the word. He says, they speak the word over you. Leaders display faith and works that are worth imitating. Leaders should display faith and works that are worth imitating. Uh, next, he says, for leaders, that you keep watch over the souls or you keep watch over people's lives. That is the main role of a leader to have those hard conversations, to keep watch. We'll talk about that. And then uh, to give an account, which is a terrifying thing when you read that, but it's also a beautiful thing. So let's just walk through this. First, this is that call to leaders. So leaders, here's the thing. Obviously, our leadership should look very differently than the world. Sadly, a lot of times it doesn't. But he says, leaders, uh, there is this idea of speak the word first. Let's just talk about that. My job, or anyone's job, spiritual leaders, is to just speak the word, man. He goes, these are the people that spoke the word over you. These are the people, people that spoke the word to you. Remember those who spoke the word to you. The point being that leaders should speak the word to their people. You know, there's a lot of things that I could get sidetracked on, you could get sidetracked on. Listen, my job, first and foremost, is to say, this is God's word. This brings truth. This brings life. All things pertaining to life and godliness are here. My job is to unfold this so that it can be understandable, applicable, knowable, that we can live it out, walk it out together. I love this verse in Psalm 119. It says, the unfolding of your word brings light. The unfolding of your word brings light. Uh, one author who talked about what is preaching, what does it mean to preach the word of God? He said, the best definition of preaching is that verse in Psalm 119. The unfolding of your word brings light. Meaning, as we unpack a verse, do you ever, I've had these moments where I'm listening to someone or reading a commentary, and as you see it being unpacked, as you get the context, you feel like the words being unfolded so well that it just exposes this light beam kind of into your soul. It reveals sin. It reveals God. It reveals his goodness. It reveals so much like there's something about the word of God being preached or taught in a way that is simply unpacking and unfolding it. And you go, wow, God, I, I see what you're saying. 
For me, last week, it was just that top of, we, we looked at that word philoxenia, like love of the stranger. And as I read that, and as I'm unpacking that more, I'm going, Lord, this is the point. This is something you want me to work on. Like, this, it brings light. I can love people like me, but do I love people differently than me? You know, it could be whatever. It could be any sort of topic or verse, but this is the role of a leader, speak the word. I cannot encourage you enough. Those of you who are leaders or desire to be leaders, just speak the word. Speak the word. Now, next, live the word. He says this. Uh, look at the next one. Display faith and works uh, worth imitating. Uh, the way he puts it is, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So I'm, I'm here to follow their faith and consider their conduct. That when people look at my life, or really any leader's life who is a proclaimer of Jesus, do you go, man, I want to follow their faith, and their conduct matches up what they say and what they believe. Now, let's talk about this. Because um, there is a lot of church hurt and church pain. Um, maybe you've walked through some experience from a, a church leader, maybe for myself, maybe from someone, where you go, man, that, was, that brought pain. That was hard. That was difficult. You know, I've walked through a lot of scenarios being a follower of Jesus now for, I want to say, probably about 14, 15 years, like solid. Um, but I've walked through a lot of different church hurt and church pain. And here's the thing. You have, like, really two options. You can get incredibly bitter. You can get incredibly resentful. And that can just poison you. Or you can just pray for grace and forgiveness on that leader. You can pray for grace and forgiveness in your own situation. You know what I, I think I found that is um, I might see another leader and I can hate their sin and here's what's been helping me or how it's helped me. Um, the Lord has like shown me, do I hate my sin even more than I hate that other person's sin? Like, do I hate my sin more than I hate that other person's sin? You know, there's a phrase we use a lot of times, um, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. That's not, that's not a bad phrase. Love the sinner, hate the sin. But I'm also take it a step further. Love the sinner, hate your sin. Right? Like, sometimes we're like, love the sinner, hate the sin. Okay, yeah, but do you hate your sin that same way? Do you hate what it does to you in your life? Um, there, there's a side of this where you can get bitter, you can get resentful, or there's a side of this where you can go, God, keep me from, from deliver me from temptation. Lord, let me not be, have the same conduct, the same outcome. Lord, help me to realize that you are good. There's no, no one good. No, not one. Only you, Jesus. Only you are good. Now, should we have leaders that we follow and attain to? Yeah. I'm very thankful for many leaders in my, my life that I can look and say, wow, they ran the race well. They finished well. They, they died well. They, they, had a good, they had a family they led well. They led the church well. There's integrity for 30, 40, 50, 60 years in some cases for many of these people. And I go, God, let that be our story. Let me not play the short game. Let me play the long game. Let me introduce better Sabbaths, better, better Sabbaths into my life, better rhythms of time to be with my family, better just moments for me to get away and pull back and to, to enjoy you and to hear from you. Let me not be about all what I do, do, do for you, but let me just step back a little bit, Lord, and receive and hear from you. And we have to do that periodically, really daily, but introduce that weekly into our lives as well, and monthly or yearly, maybe longer terms. There's a side of this where I, I want to run well, and I want every leader to run well. And if you desire to be a leader, I would say start implementing these, these breaks or these Sabbaths or these rhythms into your life that's going to help for you in the long run. But listen, there is going to be church hurt. There's going to be pain. And that's not an excuse for leaders to just get out of their sin. Like, there has to be accountability, absolutely. But I would say keep your eyes fixed on Jesus like the author's been saying, because he will in a second point out the best leader, <laughs> the best leader for us to follow. But again, in this process, it's, it's sad because you see that spiritual leadership should look differently than the world and way too often looks similar. And so here's my hope in this process as I'm trying, as I prayed even through how to discuss this, I mean, I just think of the story in Luke 18 where the, there's the sinner and the Pharisee and the Pharisee's going, thank you, God, I'm not like that man. And the sinner just banging his chest and saying, have mercy upon me, oh God. You know, I, I think that that's what I need. I just want to, I want to be like, God, have mercy upon me. 
As I lead, have mercy upon me. I need to show mercy. Why? Because I need mercy. Have mercy upon me. Does it mean it's a, an excuse to, to continue or entertain sin? Absolutely not. But I need mercy no matter what. And I want to press into Jesus with everything I got. And there's that balance of God, show me mercy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press in and, and I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And we're trying to do those two things well. Say, God, I need mercy, but let me work this out well. And I just want to encourage you guys, welcome to this journey of the Christian life. It's a sense of, God, show mercy, but let me just work this out with fear and trembling because you're working in me. And we're trying to do these things together. So he says, leaders, you got to speak the word. you got to have a faith worth following. You got, your conduct should match your beliefs. And we need accountability. We need friendship. We need community. I mean, everyone needs that. Where it's not just we're left alone on an island, where I'm in a group, people know me, and I can know them. There needs to be that mutual accountability in this. Next, he says, they keep watch over your souls. Man, the role of the leader is to keep watch over souls. I love how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Listen to this. He says, not that we lord over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Hear, hear what Paul said to the Corinthians. Paul says, we're not lords over you, but we're fellow workers of your joy. Like the role of the leader is saying, I'm not here to lord over you. I'm not here to just be this dictator, this cult leader that says, you obey me. That's not the idea. I'm a fellow worker of your joy. Like I'm here to come alongside you and say, I want to see fullness of joy in your walk with God. And you know what? I see some things in you that can be taken away from that fullness of joy. There's sin, there's self-destructive behaviors, there's pride, there's whatever. And it's like, and I'm going to work with you. And this might be frustrating because ultimately I want this to bring fullness of joy. And, and really think about what a leader does. You know, God has had to place me throughout many years now into very uncomfortable moments or situations. And why is that? Because in reality, I'm here to be a fellow worker of someone's joy. In reality, because leaders were told to watch out for people's souls. I, I don't know, I think even from a young age, I, God put that in my heart of, within friends of like, you see them going down a path that it would lead to like death and you're going, listen, I love you, what are you doing? And you pull them aside and saying, if you continue in this path, it's gonna lead here. And there's a side of that where you gotta be sympathetic, empathetic, broken, stand for truth and authority. Like there's so, much, there's so many things attached to that when you watch out for someone's souls. It's like the book of Ezekiel, someone who stands in the gap and says, no, this is not okay. I love you too much to let you continue in this way. Like we're gonna speak up, we're gonna speak into, we're gonna love. Leaders, this is your role, to watch out for someone's soul. Now with that, he, he does say something I'll, I'll point out to in a second. Uh, but next he says, you gotta give an account. Leaders give an account. This is the one that, uh, again, as I mentioned, I think of just Luke 18, like, God, be merciful to me on that day. <laughs> like, for I'm a sinful man. I need mercy. But there's something beautiful about this. Peter talks about this day where you give an account. And I, I, for leaders specifically, and I want to read the verse to you. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Listen to what P Peter says to leaders. He says, leaders, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flocks. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I mean, that is every leader's desire in a sense, not just for that crown for that sake, but as you abide, as we abide in Jesus, as we walk with Jesus, as we're in examples, is that, let that flow naturally from abiding with Jesus. But you know what the outcome? That when you stand before Jesus, you'll receive the crown of glory. That when a chief shepherd appears, that you'll receive that crown. The hope is not that you just give an account where it's like just all judgment. 
but realizing that my sin was placed on Jesus and I want to walk this out and I want to build with um, you know, gold, silver, and precious stones, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I want to build on it well and that when Jesus comes and I stand before him, it's more of a, well done, my good and faithful servant. And specifically for leaders, he talks about this crown of glory. Here's the point. Um, you can build on your leadership with wood, hay, and stubble. You can build on your Christ-like following uh, with wood, hay, and stubble or, or with precious, valuable materials. Or you can invest into things well, live well, be an example well, um, just love, serve eagerly and willingly, as he says. This is our hope. So leaders, there's a great call to us to do this well, to do it with integrity, to do it that you can be an example. Now, for the church body as well, there's a call to a higher standard of how you follow. And I don't know which one's harder for me to talk about. Like leadership, give an account or say, hey, man, guys, follow well. Both are difficult and both have their issues. So let's look at this. He says to, to those who follow, he puts it this way, the church body. He says, remember your leaders, follow their example, obey or submit, which just means yield to their authority, and then pray for them. So he also says, hey, for the church body, uh, first, let's walk through this. Remember leaders. Now, what, is he, what does that mean in verse seven? Remember your leaders. Remember those who rule over you. Remember earlier, he said this to those in prison. Remember those in prison. And this word remember is not just think about, but it can mean I support them, I love them, I encourage them, I give to them. That's what it means for those in prison, as we talked about last week. In a similar way, that can be applied, which is I love, I encourage, I support. You want there to be that for your leaders. He encourages that. I'll move on because this is weird. Number two is uh, follow their example. As you follow their example saying, um, let, you have a, a model to follow. I'm so thankful for the men and women in my life that I can look up to and say, the way they prayed, the way they lived, the way they did their family, that I want that to be an example. You want to follow that example. And next he says this, obey and yield. Obey and yield to, or submit to their authority in verse 17. So here's the one that's interesting. Like, what does this look like? Here, let me just say this. As the leader obeys and submits to the Lord, you obey and submit to the leader. There's a side of this where the leader shouldn't be having to say, when does the leader have to say, you better obey and submit? There's a part of it where you're like, what's, what's off there? But there's a, there's a necessary time where the author finds it really important to say, listen, you got to obey and submit to the authority. There's pride in your heart. You want to go down your own path. They're here to watch out for your souls. They love you. They're not lording over you. They're encouraging you. They're coming alongside you. They're going to have those uncomfortable moments with you because they want to see the fruit of this. They want to see you experience fullness of joy. And this is what he's saying when he says, obey and yield to authority. Look at verse 17, because this is interesting. He says, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You know, I think about just different moments or I think about different leaders I've known or people I've known. There's a side of this, it's like, how do you follow well? Because in reality, you let them do it with joy. You want your leaders to do it with joy. Let me say this, it is a joy for me to do what I do. It's an absolute privilege and joy. And by no means I even feel like I'm worthy of that. But it is an absolute joy and privilege. There are times where it's incredibly difficult. There are times where it's, I, I mean, this conversation is gonna be hard. And I'd say, when you know that's gonna happen, for those who wanna follow well, we're gonna follow differently. And the idea is follow in such a way where you go, hey, I want this to be a joyful thing. I know this is going to be hard, but I want to follow well so this can go well. And I want to do it with joy. I don't want to make it more difficult for you. It's already hard enough. It's already uncomfortable enough. I don't want to add to that. And the idea is, listen, if you ever want to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. If you ever want to lead well, you have to follow well. And really the author's saying, hey, world, we do leadership differently. And again, my heart breaks when you see those, the things in the Christian world that the world looks on and goes, ha, another scandal, another whatever. And so we have to fight for this. Leaders, we have to fight for this. Followers, we have to fight for this. 
We have to realize we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, but he has also placed under shepherds and we're going to follow well. In reality, they're not perfect. They're not good, but we want, we will all hold them to a higher standard where we want their life to match what they preach and believe in. But you know, we realize they're also fallible, sinful men and women, and they need grace and mercy too. And there's all this, it's not like this simple thing. It's very nuanced and there's grace. And the author's introducing all of this at this point. And then he says this, pray for us. Look at verse 19. He just simply says, pray for us. Church body, just, I, I would honestly, I, I don't really ever say this much, but I would covet your prayers. Pray for my wife, my kids, pray for our family, pray for le- our direction, everything. I would say pray for us, man. Let me, you know what this introduces? This introduces that prayer is not just some, you know, secondary thing that maybe you do once in a while, maybe it works and doesn't. You gotta understand, when the Bible talks about prayer, it's never like this, well, God is sovereign and he's gonna do whatever he wants to do and prayer really doesn't matter. That's not what you've seen in the scriptures. If your view of scriptures is, well, since God is so sovereign, he's going to do what he wants to do, me praying doesn't affect things, your view of sovereignty is limited. God views prayer, and the Bible preaches prayer and teaches prayer in such a way that it moves the heart and hand of God. When your prayers line up with God's will, God's like, yes, I will move now. It's when Daniel's praying, and God's like, you've been praying for 21 days, and you've been praying for what I want you to pray for, so I'm going to send an angel to help you out and give you a message. The point is, I don't think that message would have been sent if there wasn't prayer for 21 days. I would say pray in such a way where you believe God will move. Pray in such a way where you believe, as it talks about, that the kings, the hearts of, of the kings is in the hand of God, that God has the way to just move men and move women in whatever direction he wants to give. So I would say pray in such a way where you genuinely believe there will be a change in the outcome. Don't, it's not just flippant, we have to do this, but he says, pray for us. So why are we talking about this? I want to just kind of compare and contrast now. I'll put this online so you can see it this way. But leaders, speak the word, display faith, works worth imitating, keep watch over souls. You're going to give an account. Oh, that's incredibly humbling. Church body, remember your leaders, follow their example, obey and yield to their authority, pray for them. I mean, both have this sense of mutual, listen to this, there's mutual accountability. There's mutual respect and love. There's mutual, uh, I have, I have uh, a covenant I'm in a sense making with you. I need to speak the word. I need to live a life worthy of integrity. You're saying, I will follow well. I'll pray for you. There's just this mutual relationship thing happening. And that is a beautiful thing you see within the church. I'm bringing this up to say, if you are watching this and you're still not a part of a local church or you've just been going from church to church for months now, find a local church and just commit yourself to that local body, that local community. God created deacons and elders. We didn't. God created leadership. We didn't. There's a, a sense of order to this that we say we want to be a part of the local expression of the body of Christ. Eventually, you have to say, I'm going to submit myself and come under this leadership or come under this church. I'm going to serve it, give myself to it. Hey, I'm going to come under it and serve the church. There's a side of this where you kind of say there has this mutual serve and love one another and you can't just forever attend a service never view yourself as an attendee i mean you are a part of the body of christ you're not just attending or watching online i know it's a bizarre season but it's so much more than that it's saying when one part hurts all of it hurts if there's a need here we all jump in there's a sense where we want to move together so if you feel no one's reached out to me reach out to someone if you feel like you're not connected seek that out and we will do our best to come alongside you, support you, talk about discipleship, some of those things, even the next few weeks. Like, here's how we want to disciple well and love well. And so I'm excited because I, I think Jesus and the Bible paint such a beautiful picture of the church, and yet the church gets such a bad rap. And yet Jesus built the church. He made the church. He designed the church. He's the foundation we build the church upon. And this is what the author's saying next, right? So verse 8 is what? What does verse 8 say? Read with me. He says this, uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How random does that feel where it's like, hey, remember your leaders, Jesus, he's going to say, look at your leaders, but there's the greatest leader. Circumstances change, leaders change, Jesus Christ always remains. 
This is what we call the immutability of God. The immutability is simply this, just God does not change. I love Malachi 3.6. He says, for I am the Lord, I change not. I am the Lord, I don't change. When I was um, about 19 years old, I, I got a couple of books on like the attributes of God. Because that question of like, what is God really like? And I think one of the attributes, and I don't want to say I think, I know one of the attributes that stood out to me the absolute most was the immutability of God. And just the thought of everything in life seems to be changing. Everything in life seems to be, there's these great highs, these deep valleys, deep lows. And yet you have Jesus as this consistent, constant anchor who's not going anywhere. He's there. He's faithful. He's that rock. He's the whole room we build our lives upon. He's the foundation. He's not going anywhere. And there's something about building the church, obviously, on Jesus, our lives on Jesus, that our message is Jesus, that we want everything to be about Jesus, that, again, he's now talking about bad leadership in verse 9, false leaders, false teachers, and he's saying, hey, remember those who rule over you. Hey, keep in mind, Jesus, though, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me say this. There are churches that are built sometimes on a lot of things that flow out of the gospel, meaning there's an emphasis maybe on end times or spiritual gifts or uh, social justices, and which are all necessary things to discuss and talk about and, and necessary and beautiful things. But Jesus is the center point of that. That as we talk about different topics and issues, which we will in the coming weeks, that Jesus is the focus in that. That the gospel is the, the, the center point and those co- discussions come from Jesus. They come from the gospel. And we want everything to be built upon him and who he is. That this church is built by him and for him. That if he doesn't build the house, we're laboring in vain. That Jesus, again, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When, I've, when my wife and I first moved to Florida, and we were not even a year married, I remember the last night in, in her, our parents' house, because everything was packed up, and I remember just being there in the room, she's in bed, and I remember just, the, I was overwhelmed with the feelings of, what are we doing? We're moving to Florida. Is this gonna be forever, God? What is, what is going on? And I remember just feeling that sense of like anxiety coming up kind of as if the first time was the night before. And I want to say this, this concept brought me the most peace. That though I move, though my life changes, though my circumstances change, though my family's 3,000 miles away, whatever, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it was the thought of just that Jesus is still with us. He's not changed because we're in a new location. He's not, it's just all of that brought me so much peace. And this is the leader we look to. And this is the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, as he says here. This is the one we look to. Now, moving on, the author says, but there's some bad teachings coming in. And look at verse nine. He says, he says it this way in Hebrews 13, verse nine. He says, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. He's like, okay, leaders, they might come and go. Jesus remains forever. Bad teachings will come and go. And he goes, don't, don't, don't fall for that. Don't fall for these bad doctrines. Those who try to get your heart focused, for them it was foods, meaning going back to the Jewish dietary law might not you know, really apply to us right now in this moment, but the idea is there will be an emphasis on other things other than Jesus. There will be an emphasis on other things other than grace. Because what does he say in verse nine, the key phrase? Let your hearts be established by grace. I mean, like circle that, highlight that, note that right next to that. I mean, that is, that is the key. That as other teachings will come and go, is it built upon, is, it, is your heart established by grace? Because in 2020, it might not be discussions on food, but it might be discussions on a plethora of other topics. And as we approach these topics, as you might approach someone who has more of a legalistic, cynical background, they're criticizing everyone and everything. Let your heart be established by grace. As people want to kind of start a fight with you on a political realm or a social justice realm, let your heart be established by grace. 
Like, let your conversation, let your speech be with love and seasoned with salt. Let your speech just be so filled with grace in that moment that you can sympathize and empathize and listen and ask questions, and seek to understand, not just be understood. And I would say, be established by grace. There's gonna be a lot of other conversations that come and that phrase, it is good, it is good, man, for your heart to be established by grace. You can tell when someone's heart is established by grace or established by the law. You can tell when someone's building their life off of Jesus and the gospel or they're building, building it off of some secondary thing that's in the Bible, but it's secondary to Jesus and grace and, the, and, his, and who he is and what he's done. So he goes, let your hearts be established this way. Leaders, let your hearts be established by grace. Followers, let your hearts be established by grace. Next, we'll keep going. It's number two. We're going to see spiritual worship, spiritual worship. Let's read verse 10. It says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We'll talk about what that means. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary, the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips to God, or giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share with such sacrifices God is well pleased. We see spiritual worship. Now, what is he talking about? Like, you can't eat this, Jesus outside the gate, outside the camp. Here's the idea. The author is doing something that Jews would understand. He's drawing a beautiful parallel between the sin offering that was on the day of atonement and Jesus Christ's death on the cross in Calvary. So let me explain what that means. On the day of atonement, there would be an offering for sin, the sin offering. But they, they would take that sin offering and they would go outside the city walls, outside the gates, outside the camp, and that's where they'd burn it. They usually didn't do that, but the idea was, you know, on the day of atonement, the day man was made right with God, this very important Jewish holiday, uh, their idea was sin must be out of our presence. It must be cut off from our group. Sin must not be named among us. Sin must not be among us. Bring it outside the gate, outside the camp. Sin must be separated from the people of God. That is the idea. And then it was burned. Now, the idea for us today is the same, the same concept. He's saying Jesus, who took on the sin of the world, was crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He's crucified on Mount Calvary. Jesus, the sin offering. Jesus is that lamb, that, that lamb that speaks of the day of atonement. But so much is the idea that he's saying, just like you, you would bring it outside the gate, outside the camp, so too Jesus was brought out. Why? So he could take on the sin of the world. Jesus was cut off from community so you and I could be brought into community. Jesus was cut off from people, brought outside the gate, outside the city, just like the sin offering, so you and I could be brought in. And that's such a beautiful thought. But the, the encouragement to you and I is now go to him outside the camp, meaning your life, you're going to bear his reproach as he says, your life will look very differently than everyone else's. When you go to Jesus and you're leaving what's popular, you're leaving what's common, and you're saying, I'm gonna go to him who suffered outside the gate. You're gonna be very distinguishable. You're gonna be noticeable. Your life is gonna look very different. Followers of Jesus, our life is gonna look different. And I love how Peter says, he's like, you are a peculiar people. I just think that's probably the best way to put it. Some Christians are very peculiar. But the idea is our lives are gonna look different than the world's. We're gonna be outside, we're gonna go to him. Now there's also another reference to this, and you're like, what does this mean, this phrase? Like, again, the author was bringing up so many Old Testament stories and ideas, but there's something that Moses did where he went outside the camp, and I want to read the verse to you so you get this. It's Exodus 33. Uh, Exodus 33, 
verse 7. It says, Moses, listen, he took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord, listen, he went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Here's the idea. Moses pitched his tent, the tabernacle of meeting. He would meet with God outside of where everyone else was. If someone wanted to meet with God, they had to leave, in a sense, what they were familiar with, the people, the general public. They had to leave that and go out, outside to the tabernacle where Moses was, where God's presence was. The point being, sometimes we're going to have to leave. We're going to have to leave all to follow Jesus. We're going to have to go outside of the general public, the general population, to, to meet him. That your life will be distinguishable. When you leave the camp, you notice someone's leaving. And again, the, the, for us as followers of Jesus, you're really realizing, though none go with me, still I will follow Jesus. I'm going to go outside to meet him. I'm going to go outside the camp to have a relationship with him. So there's a few ideas here about spiritual worship saying your lifestyle is going to look way different. You're going you're gonna to bear the reproaches of Christ. Just like Jesus was crucified and there's shame in that, there was uh, the, the shame that came with being outside the city walls, you too are going to have that same thing. You are going to identify with Jesus. Your, your worship's going to look different. And verse 14, that, that, fr- that verse is just so beautiful. He says, uh, we have no continuing city here but we seek the one to come. That this city, that this home was not forever. That like Abraham, he looked for the city whose builder and maker was God. He looked for the city that had no foundations. He looked for the city that would last forever. He said, that's what we're a part of here. Our, our worship is an eternal worship. Though the sacrifices have come to an end, we still have a sacrifice. What is that? Those two things, the sacrifice of praise and of our works. I mean, verse 15 and 16, let's talk about our worship. He says, therefore, by him, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, plural, God is well pleased. He's saying our sacrifices are going to look a lot different. Jesus was the one and final sacrifice for the sin of the world. So we don't need to bring a lamb or a goat or a dove. We don't need to do that. But we do have a sacrifice. We still bring God. What is that? That is praise. That is worship. That is the fruit of our lips. That is singing a a new song to the Lord, a joyful song, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. He's saying your praise is that form of sacrifice. And listen, for some of you, worshiping or singing is like a big sacrifice. Like I get that. I want to encourage you actually. If you so believe in Jesus, if you so believe in his death and resurrection, even if you're the manliest man, you're going to sing and there might be times you even tear up. There's going to be moments where you're just like buckle up inside because you go, wow, the greatest truth in the world has transformed my heart. How can you not sing? How can you not praise? I mean, eventually, even if I'm the worst singer in the world, eventually, though, you're going to go like, I don't care. I just don't care. And I'm going to encourage you. I remember being younger in my journey in this, where I had to get over what people thought of me. But maybe you're in that place, so I'd say, just get over it. You're singing to the audience of one. I mean, one person who's looking on. You're not showing off. You're not, no one can, you're, you're singing for Jesus, the fruit of your lips. You know, I love the, the, what Jesus said in the Gospels. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if there's something beautiful and joyous and good in your heart, it just comes out of your lips, the fruit of your lips. I think today in 2020, I, I wrote it down this way years ago. I'm like, out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers tweet. Like, I just think whatever's in your heart is going to come out. Whether you're tweeting it or praising it, it's going to eventually come out. And he's saying, listen, let there be song and praise. Praise, literally referring to singing. I mean, this is about singing and psalms. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, praising the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving thanks to God's name. Remember, we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving praise to his name. We're thanking him, we're praising him, we're worshiping him. And he says this, not just uh, uh, worship, 
not, that's not just the only sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise, but the sacrifice of service. Like you're going to do good. You're going to share in all good things. I mean, your, your lifestyle is going to match up again what you believe. So there's a side where I know a heart has been transformed when they're generous. I really, I really want this to be stuck. When someone's heart has really been transformed, they share in good things. They become about others. They, they, they actually look out and go, how can I bless someone? How can I be a part of this? My, my, again, my actions are backing up what I, my beliefs. And there, there's a sacrifice of song, the sacrifice with works, and it's just mixed together. Listen, our worship's going to look different. We can't just say we love and respect and admire Jesus and never serve him or give to him or meet other people's needs. It's, just, it's, not, it's not possible. You love Jesus, you're going to love others. You sing to him, you praise him, you're also going to love his creation that he loves, the other image bearers of God. It's just going to come out naturally. So we see spiritual leadership, we see spiritual worship, and now he, he ends with this benediction. We're going to see spiritual lordship. Verse 20, we'll close with this. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, listen, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is one of those passages where I feel like whatever I say next doesn't really matter. Like this is, you, this is one of those passages where you just want to read it and let your heart meditate on it. Where I feel like I could just read this. You could read this over and over and over again and get something new. Like you could read this over and over and over again. This, is like, this was a blessing or a prayer of, you could say, their pastor over his people. He, this is what you call, like, remember in the book of Numbers, there's something called the priestly blessing, where he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was a blessing they would speak over the people, the priestly blessing. It's such a beautiful way to close out any time, but just the Lord bless you. And he's saying, may the God of peace be with you. Man, you have the God of, God is not wrathful towards us. He was wrathful towards our sin. He was wrathful towards his son. Now we have the God of peace. He's like the God of peace who brought you up, who brought up, sorry, our Lord Jesus from the dead. I mean, this really is like the first straightforward reference to his resurrection, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is, is living. He didn't die and then ri rise again just to die again. He forever rose again, who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Let him make you complete in all good things. Listen, to do his will, to do his will, not your will. God's making you complete to do his will, to join God for his will for your life. Not, God, here's my will, will you bless it? But God, I want to know your will, and I want you to make me complete for your, your will for me and my life. And we get to just partner with God on this. And this is just a beautiful prayer, a beautiful blessing. And I just want to kind of focus on this one phrase, and we'll just close out. But that great shepherd of the sheep. We read earlier in 1 Peter, he was called the chief shepherd. Here he's called the great shepherd. In John 10, Jesus was called the good shepherd. Now, stay with me. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Here in Hebrews 13, he's called the great shepherd of the sheep. What does he do? He is alive, and he's trying to make us complete. And then, and we see in 1 Peter 5, he's the chief shepherd who appears, who comes back for his sheep. So follow with me. His death, he's saying, I'm the good shepherd, I died. I died for my sheep. I'm the great shepherd, I live for my sheep who makes you complete. And I'm the chief shepherd who will come back for my sheep. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Now, this is really fun. And Bible commentators put this all together. They say, this is seen in Psalm 22 through 24. 
In Psalm 22, Jesus is the good shepherd who died for the sheep. You can read it clearly, describe his death on the cross. He's the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Psalm 23 is the most famous Psalm probably in all the Psalms. And it's about Jesus being that great shepherd. He's the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He brings me beside still waters. Think about it this way, like Hebrews 13. He's the great shepherd who's living, who's taking care of us, meeting our needs. And then lastly, Psalm 24 is this shepherd who comes back in glory. This shepherd who's on the throne, ruling and reigning. And that's 1 Peter 5, the chief shepherd who appears in glory. Here's the idea. The Bible constantly portrays the idea that God is the shepherd, we are the sheep. God has raised up under shepherds that we are to lead well. But God is the chief. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, that we look to him. We get our instruction from him. It's the blood of his everlasting covenant. And listen, this is why we want to end our time with communion in just a moment. That's why I ask you to get communion ready. But Hebrews has been trying to point to this beautiful truth that everything in the scriptures speaks of Jesus. And now he ends with his shepherd role the shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. The shepherd, listen to this, sheep would shed their blood for a shepherd, but here the shepherd sheds his blood for sheep. Try to say that five times fast, that's really hard. But the, the sheep would normally give up their blood, but here the shepherd gives up his blood for the sheep. And he's that good shepherd, great shepherd, chief shepherd. And that you and I get to now, again, going back to this Hebrews passage, we don't eat of the sacrifices like the priests would, the priest would eat after, of the sacrifice. He goes, we eat of a better sacrifice. We get to eat and partake and remember the, the body, the death of Jesus and his blood that was shed so our sins could be forgiven. And we remember as he says that he's the shepherd who rose again, the blood of the everlasting covenant that he's trying to make us complete. Here's what I wanna say. View communion as a time where you say, God, make me complete. God set broken areas in my life straight. You know, this, it was interesting. This word or phrase, make you complete in verse 21, it might say in your translation, equip, equip you for every good work or make you complete. It's one Greek word, and I'm not gonna try to say it because I'm gonna butcher it, but I'm gonna tell you what it means. I love Warren Wearsby's commentary on this. Here's what he says. Listen, we'll put the verse or the phrase up. Cat, oridzo. This is an unfamiliar word to us, listen, but it was familiar to the people who received this letter. The doctors knew it, they knew this word, because it meant to doctors to set a broken bone. To fishermen, this word meant to mend a broken net. To sailors, this word meant to outfit a ship for a voyage. To soldiers, it meant to equip an army for battle. He says, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, who lives for us, is trying to make you complete set your broken bones straight again, to equip you for a battle, to get you ready for a voyage, to, to fix that broken net. He's saying, Jesus is just here to make you complete, man. Communion is a reminder for us of saying, Jesus, my heart is prone to wander. It's prone to go away from you. Set my path straight again. Jesus, you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. Jesus, I want to follow your way, the way of Jesus, the way of living and doing life. And communion is for us that moment where we can slow down and say, Jesus, make my crooked path straight. Jesus, I remember your, your, your body, your death, your resurrection, that Jesus, that brings healing and life and it's to make me complete. Listen, Jesus is truly living and alive. I don't know if we get this, church. Jesus is truly living and alive and working with us and in us to make us complete as the author says. Do we believe that? 
that Jesus, that, that, that God the Father, that God the Son, that God the Holy Spirit is working in our lives to make us complete, to make us more like him, to make us more well-rounded, to, to make us better followers of Jesus, better goers out and bringers of the gospel, to just to make us more like Jesus in this way. So here's what I want to say. As you prepare a communion, as you have it right now, um, we're going to take it, and I would just say, pray over it and just invite God. God, make my heart complete and whole. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to pray in a second. I'm going to ask that you grab your cup and grab your, your cracker and then, or bread or whatever you have and just pray over it. And just thank God for it. Listen, we're, we're finishing this book of Hebrews, but it's not for us to like forever be over from it. Go back to this, study this, give your heart over to this. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, church. Fix your eyes upon the one, the God of peace, the, the blood of the everlasting covenant. So I'm gonna be quiet, I'm gonna be still. I'm gonna take communion. I'm gonna ask that you do the same. Thank you, Silver, appreciate it. And let me just pray over you, over communion. And as I'm done praying, I'm gonna be quiet for a while. I'm gonna take communion and I'm going to say, after I'm done praying, you pray over it. You thank the Lord. You give him the fruit of your lips. Praise. Say, thank you, Jesus. So just spend some time with the Lord. Let me pray for you and then take communion as soon as we're done. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we get a chance to, even in this way, remember your body, which was broken, your blood, which was shed for our forgiveness of sins, that we could be made right with you, God. Lord, that you are the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, that Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think even just years before, you had people eating of the, the Passover lamb or eating of the, the lamb that was sacrificed to you. And we too get to eat of the lamb. We too get to eat and remember that Jesus, by your stripes, we're healed. Thank you. Thank you, God, that that hasn't changed, that we join a beautiful history of those who look forward to you by faith and we look back to you by faith. That Jesus, just as blood was shed for people's forgivenesses then, your blood was shed for our forgiveness now. And so Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that the shepherd gave his life for us, the sheep. And so Lord, we ask that you would speak and encourage and move in our hearts in your name. Amen.